Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do what you did think- it? Oh, dang. Oh, God wow. damn it. Oh, my God. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer, writer but. Welcome to I'm a Writer, but we have Joanna Novak here with us. Her short story collection, Meaningful Work, won the Ronald Sukenik Innovative Fiction Contest. She is the author of three books of poetry, most recently New Life, out on Black Lawrence Press, and a novel, I Must Have You. Her debut memoir, Contradiction Days, will be published by Catapult in 2023. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and other publications. She is a co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook publisher, Tammy. Welcome, Joanna. Welcome. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Alex. It's great to be here. This is so exciting. Awesome. I'm sorry that you've only ever been published in these podunk places, but I have faith <laughs> that things are going to turn around. <laughs> we'll try. We'll keep trying. <laughs> yeah, keep trying. Okay. No one can take anything away from you. Um, <laughs> what are you going to read to us? You know, I think I am going to read a story for meaningful work that I have never read before, Um, but it is a story filled with food and therefore I love it. Yes. So it is called Lamb Goat Tongue. This originally appeared in the Bennington Review. So much, much gratitude to them. Awesome. Lamb Goat Tongue. His landlady stopped him after she parked the van. Usually five children spilled out but now only the woman heaved herself from the driver's seat. She must have weighed twice as much as the man. He was trim, she was not. He fasted until dinner time. Relics of fast food littered her car. In and out bags, Artie's cups. Once he'd seen a full box of Taco Bell nachos, beef. Breathless, the landlady greeted him with purpose. It was the first of the month. He was a good tenant, a listener. Her smile went from curious to coy. Then she asked him, do you like goat? The man shifted his groceries. He was in the middle of making enchiladas. In a pot on the stove, cumin and oregano and cayenne tinged the oil brown. It was time for next steps. Sandra was on her way home. I don't know, he said. Well, this goat you'll like, you'll love, the landlady said. 
Her purple eyeshadow made her look young. This is the best goat in Los Angeles. You guys want some? The man said sure, even though Sandra said she did not eat meat. The enchiladas were vegetarian, shiitake and sweet potato, because she said she did not eat meat. Their fridge, however, often did have meat. His turkey, his chicken. Sometimes he wondered if she ate it. Goat would be no different, though he felt a little desperate accepting random meat from a van. This too. The landlady handed him a plastic bag knotted at the top with a carton inside. The inside of the bag was wet. Goat juice. She told him to mix it with some beans and rice and enjoy. Let me know how Sandra likes it, the landlady said. The man found space in the fridge next to cashew milk and orange mustarda. As he listened to sketches of Spain, his love for Sandra swelled. She said she did not eat meat, fine. She, did, she said she did not sleep well, also fine. She said she did not want children. She'd said it the other day at 6 a.m., at 6 p.m., at midnight. He put that out of his mind. He spread enchilada sauce on the bottom of the casserole pan. Outside his window, the quintuplets squealed, and then the landlady's parenting voice deepened. No, get in the van. Just as the enchiladas were ready, he heard heels on the asphalt. He commended his timing. Through the window by the stove, he watched the crown of Sandra's head while she climbed the stairs, the first flight. The apartment smells wonderful, she said. She kept on her work clothes, which she preferred. No mention of the music. The plate he set in front of her, she complimented. He'd centered the enchiladas, sprinkled them with the salty cheese she liked, cilantro. The baby grape tomatoes had been in the oven blistering. He asked about her day. After she told him, he spoke about the questions that could be asked of the president. They lived in a nation. They were citizens in a world beyond the two of them, and he did his civic duty, processing the news. He was surprised she used the word collusion. He laid down his knife and fork, intersecting. She parallel. She said she didn't want more. Another corn tortilla won't kill you, he said, getting a second helping. She just took garnishes. Did you see the lamb in the fridge, he asked. She licked something off her bottom lip. I haven't been in the fridge, she said. He sat down. There's a box of lamb in a container. He told her about the landlady, how this was the best lamb in Los Angeles. Then he felt angry because Sandra looked at him like, okay, when really there should be room for a husband to explain to his wife an abundance of strange meat in the fridge. Perhaps because of his anger, he spent a long time meditating in the courtyard. And while meditating in the courtyard, he opened the communal grill the landlady had shown him and there it was, a nipper of Smirnoff he kept expecting a neighbor to nick. He mined the deep well of his thoughts, and his mouth stung, worse than from the cayenne in the sauce. He recycled the bottle and returned to the apartment where Sandra was working. He fell asleep, sitting up on the couch. Of course, marriage is composed of many mornings, and the man found the next one peaceful. It was brighter than yesterday, and he even saw a hummingbird outside their bedroom window. He meditated in the courtyard again, and this time the meditation came with clarity. He saw himself teaching a child to wrap mushrooms inside tortillas, Sandra showing the child how to use a potato peeler. He came back to the apartment, certain this was the greatest day of his life. In the kitchen, Sandra dumped water into the Chemex. Goat coffee, he said. Pretty wife. Goat? You didn't want goat coffee? She put down the water, waiting for the grounds to settle. You said lamb. I said it was goat, he said. She shook her head, smiling how she smiled when she was about to get upset. Their counselor had used the phrase lash out. Lamb. 
She said goat. I said goat. I know it's goat, you said. I don't know what you heard. You said lamb, she said. But I didn't. You're wrong, she said. But it doesn't matter. The ground settled. She poured them both coffee. When it was time for her to leave for work, he offered her the leftovers. You think if you feed me enough enchiladas, you'll make me want to get pregnant, she said. Her heels shot down the steps toward the car. He opened the fridge, stared at the meat, and truly couldn't recall if it was lamb or goat. Often he had visions during meditations. Recently, he'd watched himself cutting out Sandra's tongue. In the vision, there weren't any repercussions to the violence, neither guilt, nor its wiser progeny, remorse. Just choice, decision, action, a red solipsistic stake on the ground. No regrets, only in his hand, their serrated knife. Thanks. Thank you so much. I was saying before, um, before we started recording, how much I love when poets write fiction um, and, you know, and memoir as you have done and are doing. Um, because the care and the tenderness and the precision and the wildness and the, um, I don't know, there's just stay in a moment. Yeah. There's just like different permission structures. I feel, (laughs) um, I I was just reading the Benjamin Labatut book, um, when we cease to understand the world. And one of the scientists that he talks about in that book says, in order to understand my work, you have to unlearn everything you've ever learned. (laughs) And I feel like (laughs) that's kind of how poets approach fiction or memoir is they're coming at it from such a different, you know, thinking space, thinking space. See, I'm not a poet. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And you had um, this collection of stories that you just read from, and then your book of your third book of poetry, um, new life came out last year. Um, So that's major. Um, and I want, I want to kind of hear from you what that was like to put out a, a collection of stories and a book of poetry at the same time on different presses. Were you working on them at the same time? Do you, what was that like? Yeah, for sure. It was a really odd way to kick off the pandemic, actually, mm-hmm. um, which was to get notice that um, the short story collection had won the Sukunik Prize. And then um, about six weeks later, I found out that New Life had been selected from Black Lawrence's open reading period. Oh my gosh. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So it was just a very, and actually in between there, I, I sold the memoir to Catapult. So it was oh like, oh my very, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend who was like, buy a lottery ticket. Yes. Um, buy lots Seriously. of lottery tickets. So it was, it was incredible um, and kind of like, staggering you know like afterwards I was like well um now what (laughs) you know because it just sort of felt like um a really exciting thing but also there was the pandemic happening and that kind of like mitigated a lot of like excitement that one might feel I suppose um Mm -hmm. because the world was in uh chaos so um but it, it was a really um It was a great experience to work with both FC2 and New Life, or excuse me, and and Black Lawrence. I mean, they're both like such established um, presses and they have such interesting histories. Um, uh, But also it was like weird to put out two books in one year, you know, because you feel like you're kind of like dividing your, dividing your love a little bit. Mm. How far apart were they uh, released, Joanna? Um, so meaningful work came out in 
August and then new new life came out in December. Oh, wow. So really pretty close. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you find that there's overlap, like when you're working on fiction, poetry, memoir, and also like when you're talking about it, you know, at, at like your release events or, you know, like, do they sort of, um, meld together in your mind or are they very separate to you? I think some of the like technical things are pretty similar. I mean, I'm a really, uh, like, I think I'm a pretty Baroque writer at times and that that um shows up in my work regardless of genre Mm. so like I feel like on that level like we could talk about like the sort of like decadence of language in in any genre and it would feel like pretty true um but in terms of like the process of working on the the books um so meaningful work was like composed over like I think decades um Mm. the oldest story in there is a story I wrote my first semester in college um and like anyone who you know studies creative writing and and then gets an MFA and maybe even another MFA like one is writing stories and adding stories and like subtracting stories from their collection that they're potentially building Mm -hmm. um so the collection was really in progress for a long long time and I just happened to send it out to the Sukunik Prize um, in in 2019. Um, New Life, on the other hand, I wrote in a really concentrated way um, cool. over a couple months. Yeah, um, right. I guess in the middle of being pregnant, um, I was like really concerned that I wouldn't be productive ever again after oh, I had my baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like writing like really, really like in a very concerted manner like these poems all titled new life and um I've never worked on a book like that um and it was so exciting like to have that kind of focus that one would bring to like a novel or um maybe like a longer prose project bringing that focus to like a book of poetry was really cool experience do you think that fear you had um because I know your memoir deals with that as well with um prenatal depression and worrying about you know, maintaining that side of yourself. Do you think that came from like something you knew about yourself or something you had heard from other parents? Like where, I think, yeah. Like where did, where do you think that came from? I think it came from respecting, having a lot of like writer role models who were sort of late, sort of um, like, proudly anti-children um mm-hmm. and like I don't need to name names there are lots and lots of them um and then also being someone who was like I don't want kids my whole life and then having like a real turning point moment that happened to me my, too oh my god really mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. It, it was like I don't um think about having epiphanies a lot but like the moment when I decided like realized that I did want to have a baby was like a very epiphanic moment I was like out for a run it was really hot the sun was like you know streaming down on me and it was like oh that would be okay Um, yes it literally is a biological urge it's like and it's unavoidable for me it was it it's just like oh my god I have to I have to have a baby. I must go make baby now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So that was like really hard though, to like go from being somebody who had been like the person that in my family or among my friends was so like hardcore against children, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of switching um, that, that part of my identity was really like frightening for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't feel like that my fears have um, really like panned out, I suppose. Mm. How old is your baby now? He is a little over two, two okay. years, four months. Yeah. Okay. Things so. are getting better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's been an easy baby. Excellent. I'm interested in uh, what the, what your actual writing days looked like when you were working in such a concentrated way. Um, did you have like a very set schedule? Were you trying to like, you know, drink the same kind of tea every day? Were you making coffee at the same time? What did it actually look like? And, and did you from the outset have a sense that this was going to be a very like set project with, with a very, like, did it, did it feel like this is, I, I kind of know where the end point is of this and kind of like running a race almost. And similarly, I'd love if you could talk about how you structured it as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and if you knew that right away, or if that was something that sort of happened as you worked. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when I was working on New Life, I was working pretty much from whatever time I could get myself up in the morning. And before having my son, I was like very, very disciplined about getting up at like four or four 30 or something. Um, and I would work for two or two and a half hours, um, at my desk, uh, decaf espresso because I was pregnant. (laughs) Um, and, I would just sort of set a time. I would, you know, it's, I would work by time. I think it was, I think I would work for about two hours or until like seven o'clock. Um, and then I might return to the work during the day, or I might return, I might turn to other kinds of, uh, writing that I was doing at the time, maybe like an essay or stories, or I kind of switch between projects sometimes, but in the morning, I was just giving those first couple of few hours to the manuscript. And I did that for about two months. And, and that, got me to a, a draft of the, the, of the book. Um, then I shared the manuscript with a couple of readers, took some time off, uh, went to New Mexico where uh, coincidentally I, I wrote like a really fast first draft of the memoir that I mm. um, um, later sold. Um, and then I had some, after I had a draft of this memoir, I was like, okay, it's time to like really shape this book of poetry. And I did the same sort of thing where I was kind of getting up early, um, working for a few hours in the in the morning. And um, how I decided to put it into five sections, I honestly don't remember. Like I don't remember mm. the the sort of logic behind structuring the book. I knew it couldn't be in three sections because I thought it would be really annoying to have it in (laughs) trimesters. (laughs) Um, But it felt like, it felt like those five sections provided like these like mini movements in the book Mm -hmm. um, and these sort of phases. Um, And I also was kind of cognizant of, so running throughout the book, 
are these poems n is for blank n is for nurture n is for nature um and so i was obviously thinking about distributing those evenly throughout the sections and, and things like that um yeah that's not a very exciting answer to the structure question i'm afraid no no i i, I think <laughs> <laughs> it's an answer. Okay. Um, I just thought it was really beautiful when you get to the second section and it starts talking about your mother, um, or the narrator's mother, I should mm-hmm. say, can't assume mm-hmm. it's, but you know, um, it, it just deepens it. And, um, and I guess my, you know, a question that's sort of tied to that is, you know, you, you sat down and you were disciplined. Did you have an idea in your head of like, of it as a whole, or these ideas you wanted to explore, or did they come to you as you, as you went, did you have sort of like a starting point or were you just like, I remember we were talking to Rachel Yoder about night bitch. And she was like, Mm -hmm. I just had things to say. And like, they were just, they just kept coming and they just kept coming. Um, or for you, was it like, I have this overarching idea that I want to explore. I think there's something really, uh, some, something really resonant about the idea of like, there are things to say, Um, and it felt like this was a kind of, like, I can't over, um, I can't oversell how just like sure I was that my life would be over when I had, and so it really felt like this is it. I better get it out. Like, I better say what I have to say about, you know, like the pregnant body and motherhood. And, um, I was thinking a lot about like, my husband's sort of companion experience, um, like becoming a father and like, um, you know, like what sort of legacy I would be responsible for passing on to our child about, you know, like his, you know, my husband's past and things like that. And so it felt really like there was, um, like if I didn't write, I, I would like regret it later. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was also like, without getting too into the memoir, I suppose, like I was really, I was really depressed in my first trimester and I couldn't write. Um, I was having a hard time writing like sustained prose in a way that I was happy with. Mm-hmm. And so like writing poems felt like, okay, I can manage this and I can write a poem a day. And, you know, like I can, I can like take from whatever's around me. And like, I happen to be doing things like watching a lot of strange movies or like, you know, forcing myself to watch Rosemary's Baby. And like, (laughs) (laughs) which is what every, you know, every um, mother to be should do. And so like that kind of material was like really, um, yeah, like alive in my consciousness. I'm really interested in the, and I know I'm not going to, Cause it just occurred to me, <laughs> it's not going to come out right, but there's this, there's like this parallel between, um, deciding to have a child and immediately f- filling with fear and also like being too depressed to write, but still writing one poem a day, you know, like, I feel like there's this like yin yang of like, I, I know I'm not saying it correctly, but something about just the, the beauty of how, and I'm sorry, Alex, but mothers keep going. <laughs> um, I don't apologize. Jeez. <laughs> well, I know, you know, we can talk about, we can talk about your side of it 
all no, day long. I know. We, I know. No, we but, don't have to. No. But what I'm saying is, um, yeah, it's just, it's something beautiful about, about these choices. And then also these things that aren't choices, um, that are just necessary, um, to like who you really are, you know, like individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I wish I, I could say it better, but no, no, no. I think you're saying it really well. I mean, I think it feels like it's in certain times in life, like writing really reminds me of like, and I'm not, I'm surely not alone in this, but like writing, writing is a great reminder of like sort of human resilience. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm, um, exactly. Yeah. Well, I would love to also talk about your collection and how you put that together, considering that's a much different, like you were saying, a much longer project. Um, you know, like how did you decide what stories to keep? Was it sort of like, cause I know how I am. If I write a story, I'm like, well, this is going in the collection. I don't care. You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> I made some pages it's going in. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then it's up to like an editor down the line to be like, what the hell is this? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, like did the theme of it change over time? You know, like how did that, how, what, what did that process look like? Yeah. You know, I think it, it had a few different titles, like over the years, um, a real, a much earlier, uh, version of this manuscript was a finalist for like the Sarah Bande, um, was a Mary McCarthy prize. Mm. Um, I think it was titled secrets then. And I felt too coy. And like, I just, um, I think that I was really interested in, um, so that I, I think I was interested in the work that ended up being sort of more, um, in some ways, like plainly auto-fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of characters in this in this collection who have either names that are like bastardizations of my name mm-hmm. or like of my first name or my last name, um, who maybe share a lot of um, biographical details with me or like places of employ. And so I, I found that to be a like really kind of anchoring way for me to put the collection together. Hmm. And then I suppose I was also like, really, I love, I love collections. Like one that always stands out to me is like Jane Ann Phillips's black tickets. Mm-hmm. Like oh, that toggle fuck yes. between. Classic. Oh my God. Yeah. I love the, the oscillation between long and short, especially with writers, um, whose prose is also really sumptuous, you know, and Phillips mm-hmm. is like so, so sumptuous. And so that kind of like um, switching between between late, like switching in length felt really like something I was paying particular attention to. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about that. And then the, the, the final piece in the, collection is um this like it was published originally as this little chapbook from dancing girl press like many 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 years ago um and it's sort it's called something real and it's sort of like a kaleidoscopic view of like I guess imagined selves or something like that and so it felt like 
uh, I knew I wanted to end with that piece because I also love when collections have a sort of longer standalone, either series or novella um, that kind of, that, that concludes things. Um, I don't know, so that's some stuff I was thinking about. Um, and I know I was like weighing like, you know, the movement between first and second and third person because the stories do kind of um, oscillate between those points of view. So like making sure that like two second persons weren't like back to back so the second persons could still be distinct was important, which isn't really a very glamorous thing, but it feels like a practical concern. No, it, and it feels like a poet's concern, right? Like you're like, well, this, you know, like <laughs> this line break or this word is too rhyming with this other, you know, it makes total sense to me. There was also like, I, and I know I was thinking about sort of like, this does, it's not a perfect logic, but like I was thinking about the age of the characters and there are some stories in this collection where the, the protagonist is like an adolescent or in high school. Um, and and it felt important to kind of like let those characters have their own sort of area in the book in some mm -hmm. way. Um, and like the adult characters could like be at the adult table and the kids can be <laughs> at the kids tables, even though like the themes are really consistent throughout. So I don't know that that really makes a lot of difference, but it felt it felt nice for me to sort of separate them. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask Joanna how you came across Jane Ann Phillips work first because Black Tickets is a book that I do not remember how it ended up in my lap but it's one that meant a lot to me especially early on when I was writing short stories and I can think of some of the other you know writers I was reading at the time people like Pinkney Benedict, like Town Smokes, I remember was a book I had picked up and some of the Frederick Bartholomew, like Moon Deluxe type stuff. But I, I don't remember how exactly I arrived at Jane Ann Phillips. Do you remember how you came across her work? Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, my actually my, my first fiction writing professor in college recommended I read Black Tickets oh, when cool. I- yeah, my very first, um, my very first creative writing class. Um, and I think it's, it, it was definitely after um, this one story that's in the collection called Memo 19 that is about a sort of like gang rape fantasy and very dark, very, very lyric. Um, and I think that was a real, like, uh, it felt like, like that, that gave the professor cause to be like, you should really read Jane Ann Phillips and Mary Gateskill <laughs> yeah. um, and, and everybody else who was writing about things that were, you know, falling under the bad behavior rubric. <laughs> right. God. Yeah. It, it's kind of amazing how those, those first few recommendations can really shape a writing life in a lot of ways. And just like the way you even think about putting together your own work for years and years after it's, 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 uh, it's great that these people are out there still saying these names out loud, because I think uh, Jan Phillips is a name I hadn't heard in a long time, but it was, I was so happy when you said black tickets, I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and wedding picture is like a story that I used to teach all the time. Like oh, cool. The first story in that collection is yeah. just 
absolutely phenomenal and what she does in like 70 words or whatever that story consists of is like more than you know I think a lot of writers can manage in many more pages like she's just so potent um yes so she stayed with me for sure that's awesome I would love to hear you talk a little bit about um your work history um because you had a pretty hellish adjuncting (laughs) time in your life um and you know in addition to all the uh the menial jobs that we have to undertake (laughs) to feed ourselves as we're trying to follow these you know writing paths um yeah what was that like where are you now (laughs) um I have had a lot of jobs and I I often feel like a workaholic um but like it's like an energizing uh, problem, I suppose. Um, being like overcommitted often makes me feel like I, I write sort of more furiously and um, more urgently. Um, my first job was when I was 14 at the snack bar at Timber Trail Swim Club. Yes. Um, that job consisted largely of warming up frozen churros in oh, like a little pizza yeah. oven. Yeah, or um, like building boats of nachos for people, (laughs) Uh, sometimes scraping out the like pizza jar that was also in the pizza (laughs) oven. Eating it. And yeah, uh, no, it was so gross. It had the worst smell. Oh yeah, I don't do that either. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the best thing that I had to do at that job was for some reason at at this snack bar, it was protocol um, that was coming was custom, I suppose, to sell Swedish fish in bags of 10. And you they were not pre-bagged <laughs> Swedish fish. They were just they were not like a package of MMs. Did you have like a big, Swedish fish tongs or something? <laughs> I had to wear a glove and <laughs> a Swedish glove, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like they there are these like baseball card sleeves into which oh one would God. count 10 Swedish fish and then like fold over the top, seal it with scotch tape, and then line them up in the empty Swedish fish box. And one tab of acid. And I loved that task. My like compulsive little anorexic mind was like, this is heaven. I'm going to count fish all day. Let's see how fast I can do it. I love that. Did you get that? Yeah. Did you get weird with colors? Was it like, all right, here's a blue pack, here's a red pack, or or were you just like all red? It was all red fish. All Swedish fish are red, Alex. Oh Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah, it's not like Sour Patch Kids. They're all red. I'm not locked into the candy. I guess Jesus Christ. Yeah, I didn't know about Swedish fish. I swear, until I moved to the Midwest, um, it wasn't like a thing in Florida. Pixie sticks was the thing. Okay. That sounds Florida, yeah. And we did snort it. <laughs> of course. But yeah, that was my first job. And then I, I like worked a bunch of different like food jobs. Um, everything from like being a waitress at like a little bistro in college to scooping ice cream at Cold Stone Creamery to <laughs> slicing bagels at Great American Bagel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in a hardware store for a while and a lighting store um, between MFAs. I got really desperate and was like a wedding registry girl at Macy's and like, what does that mean? Could you, could you say more about that? <laughs> that job? I'm like, I want to hear a lot more about Macy's. <laughs> 
Um, well, I helped brides to be sign up for their wedding registries and tried to convince them that they needed to register for China. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I signed so up for funny. the dumbest shit. I like, I wish I could go back in time and redo my wedding. Cause I didn't, I would never thought about getting married or having a wedding. I like my whole life. I just thought it was stupid. And so then it was time to get married. I just like did what I thought you were supposed to do. And I just registered for like, like a random end table. like one end table, you know? And then like, just like random stuff. And I just wish I could go back and be like, (laughs) like send us money to go on our honeymoon or donate to the manatees, (laughs) you know, like the manatees need it more than that's right. They really do. They really do. Yeah. That was a weird, it was a job I had just for like three or four months before I got on like the adjunct hamster wheel in Massachusetts. Um, and yeah, it was just like a weird, it was a weird, sad little Macy's too in Holyoke Mall. <laughs> the mall was dying around the Macy's and the Macy's oh. was not doing much better. Um, <sighs> but it was a job that wasn't in food service. And like, I'd been in, in my first MFA, I started like working in pastry and I started doing a lot of like staging and fine dining in Chicago and working in pastry kitchens in St. Louis where I was getting my MFA at WashU at the time. And after doing that for like three or four years, I was like, I can't probably keep working in kitchens because I don't have energy to write after like 10 or 12 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. And so switching from like kitchen work, back of the house work to like first Macy's and then like compulsive adjuncting was actually like a huge, like it really changed how I thought about myself as a writer. Um, I just felt like so much, so much more able to um, like come to, come to the page with like energy and not just like, and and with sort of like a committed, um, (laughs) like with, with diligence rather than like when I could squeeze it in between like, you know, uh, like sleeping after hauling a bunch of sheet pans or something like that. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I, want to hear more about the hamster wheel, but but I I really um, need you to tell me why two MFAs? Oh, well, um, because I heard it was possible. Oh, I think I I think I I heard that Mark Leidner had done it. And I was like, okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I but seriously, I was at I was like one of those people who went straight from undergrad to her MFA. And so I felt really young, like still by the time I finished that first MFA. And was that um, in poetry? It, my first MFA was in fiction. In fiction, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, at WashU in St. Louis. And um, I that program is really like very boundaried in that, or when I was there, like you didn't, you couldn't take workshops that were not in your genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would kind of find these classes that were like special topics courses that would let you, uh, you know, like (laughs) um, transgress the boundary, like the genre lines a little bit more. Um, And I was taking those classes and writing prose poems and and writing like flash fiction. And so I kind of was thinking like, I would love to get an MFA in poetry if someone would have me. (laughs) And, um, And so I applied Um, after finishing my MFA while I was like just working a pastry job in St. Louis 
um, and teaching a little at WashU. And um, yeah, I got, I got into UMass um, and I was really fortunate. Like my first year, I didn't have to teach or anything there. I remember Peter Gizzi called me and was like, you'll get a little money. It's shoe money, but uh, it's still something. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thanks, Peter. Um, but yeah, so it's, I, then when, you know, like when someone offers to um, let you come and get an MFA, um, and specifically at UMass, it seemed like a really, it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, and yeah, it, it was a, a good decision. And thus started your illustrious adjuncting professorial career <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's so it was sort of like a thing that I feel like you kind of did if you were mm -hmm. in western Massachusetts just because of the mm. glut of uh like institutions of higher education in that area I mean like I was I think when I was when I was at UMass I was adjuncting at three or four different schools in addition to teaching at UMass. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. God. And like, yeah, I had this like little circuit where I would go from like one school to another to another and basically teach like a high school teacher's kind of load in a day. Oh, um, Jesus. Yeah. But it's, it was, it is sort of Jesus, but it was also sort of like really quite a rush because I would feel like, all right, like I did a lot of, I hustled and I made a lot of money, I guess. And that was mm. like kind of, yeah. That was okay. Yeah, making money making money is fine with me. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really bad, but it also made me feel like I was I was really cognizant of the fact that if I taught during the year and was busy, then I would have like I would have to, I would have nothing to do over the summers. You know, like I could give myself mm. that time to be completely off or something. Mm -hmm. And then it also just happened to be. I just noticed that the more that I worked, the more I felt like industrious as a writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was good. Who uh, was John Brandon at WashU when you were there? He was not. He came back though to do a reading. Oh, and cool. I remember it really clearly because he talked about how, was his book Florida? Is that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So he talked about how he had written that book while working at a windshield factory. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that always stayed with me. Like those stories of how writers find the time or make the time um, after or before or between, you know, like shifts. The, mm. those are really inspiring to me um, same yeah I love that well tell us how you find the time now it's so much harder now than I have a kid <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean I feel like that's a really obvious thing to say um I um I think I find the time now um by being willing to be like <laughs> A little negligent about other things in my life yeah um like if i have to choose between like having a killer workout or writing i'm definitely going to write mm -hmm. like it's no question um and similarly like with you know things that one might spend a lot of time on in terms of like grading or other kinds of like teaching related activities i'm much speedier about those things um, even like responding to emails, like when you have a kid, I feel like you stop 
like really putting off sending emails that you have to resend and you're just like, okay, got it. Good. Thanks. Yep. You know, like move on because that's not work that really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I still, I think I still look for those pockets of time, whether it's the morning, which has become just harder for me. I don't know why, but, um, I'll stay up pretty late. Like after everyone in my house is asleep, um, and I'll work or, um, I do those, I do this thing, which feels like a little too like time optimizey for me, but I do it. I do like Pomodoro timers during the day where I'll set like a timer for 25 minutes and write and then break and then do that like four or five more times. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a day when it's really a busy day and getting the writing in is difficult. Um, and then also I'm really fortunate because I have a husband who more than shares in childcare and they have a, a, a wonderful babysitter who comes to our house like four or five days a week to help out. So, oh, awesome! you know, like that's a huge, huge um, blessing and I, I do not take it for granted. Yeah. It's so funny. It's like, after you become a parent, you're your thoughts about sleep and your thoughts about like time for yourself change so much, you know, and mm-hmm. for a writer, like, I remember if, if you guys know the writer, Claire Zolke, um, she said, um, you don't like, I, I was asking her, my, my, my baby was like six weeks old. I was asking her like, when will I sleep again? And <laughs> she was like, um, my therapist told me like, it's not about that. You'll get back to the sleep that you had, but that you'll learn to appreciate the sleep that you now have. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounded like the doomiest, most horrific thing, but it's become more wise. Like the more children I acquire, (laughs) the less sleep I get. I'm like, oh man, I got a real good chunk last night, you know, Mm. like, and Mm -hmm. same with time, same with time to yourself. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, I got that 25 minutes in or whatever, those 500 mm-hmm. words, whatever. I, I think the other weird thing though, about like, and I sometimes feel a little like traitorous to my writer self saying this, but like having, a, I love being a mom, like more than I ever would have anticipated. It's so fun. My son is just like a delight. We read stories and draw and like, it's just, he's a pretty great kid. And like, I, often think to myself, like, do I want to be writing right now? Or do I want to be reading Madeline for the 15th time? And I, <laughs> many, many times I'm like, I want to be reading Madeline for the 15th and 16th time, because there's going to be a time when he doesn't want to hear that, right. you know, the 12 little girls were in two straight lines breaking their bread. <laughs> He's going to be like grown up and then I will be able to write or read or do whatever I want. And like having the kind of like, you know, emotional experiences of being a mom feel uh, often more, more uh, valuable to me than like some of the writing that I think I could be doing, which yeah, again, feels traitorous to the writer self. No, I I really love that answer because I think it, I mean, I, (laughs) I was thinking of the things that replace writing for me and they're definitely not as noble as what you just said as far as actually being an engaged parent but um (laughs) not that i'm not sometimes but uh yeah it's true it's true it's just it's just a fact that i think a lot of times you having children just kind of it changes 
what you're forced to prioritize in the day in a very obvious way, but then also in, in smaller ways, like you're just saying, I mean, um, a lot of those moments, it, it gives you a long view on some of those moments that you maybe hadn't anticipated for sure. I think it's Michael Chabon who has that, who says that thing about like, if I hadn't had this number of kids, maybe I would have written this number of books more, yeah. but I would never have, I would never choose those books over like having these kids. And I think, you know, like that, that sort of resonates with me. Like, yes. yeah, definitely. I like, I read, um, I think I've said this on the pod before, but I read uh, Steve Jobs's daughter's memoir. And she said, like when he was dying, what he really regretted and what he would cry about and feel anguish about was that he didn't spend more time with her and with his other kids. It wasn't, I have more Apple inventions to, to do, or I have more, you know, it was, he should have spent more time with his family. And I don't know. I think about that all the time because who changed the world more than him, you know, but mm-hmm. that wasn't at the end of his life. That wasn't what mattered. And it was too late for him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that note, on that horrible, sad note, <laughs> is your memoir available for pre-order yet? Not yet. No, Not I'm yet. still okay. working on, I'm still working on edits right now. So it's like, I'm asking you this in, in January of 2022 and it comes out in 2023, but <laughs> um, I appreciate the interest. Yeah. It's on catapult everyone. So, you know, check again in six months, <laughs> see yes. if it's ready to pre-order. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for being on. This was a true pleasure. And um, thank you so much for having me. Fans yeah, of thank you. poetry, fans of fiction, fans of poets who write fiction and prose writers who write poems, please check out Joanna's work. You will love it. So when I came down here to get ready for, um, for this mm-hmm. Parker plays this game on my computer sometimes that his school, it's like from a site that his school recommend recommends. Okay. And it's a game called wheelie. It's a problem solving game. Like there's no directions. Awesome. You just have to get like this little car to this red flag using what's on the screen. And so like it used to frustrate the hell out of him, drive him nuts. And he wanted to know exactly what to do, but, um, slowly over time, he's learned to like, kind of sit with it and try to figure it out anyway. So he was doing that tonight during screen time and like on my laptop. And so when I came down here and opened up my computer, I saw, I, you know, like I've been writing and, um, my work was just open to a sex scene. So God knows if he, opened, if, he <laughs> if he went to go on wheelie oh and read a little lesbian sex scene that his mom wrote, who knows how uh, how graphic is it? Mm-hmm. Okay, I think there's. Let's see, it's pretty. I mean, at first I was like, "Oh, this isn't so bad," and then I kept reading, and I was like, "Oh." Um, <laughs> I mean, he'd. Ha- I guess he'd have to like really read. I don't think he did because I think he would have come up. Is that how he, like- is that how he's wired? Like, if he sat down and saw it, do you think he would just like like lock in and read it? I think he'd be like, "Ugh, what's this crap?" You know, let me get to wheelie. <laughs> but I Where's can't be my sure. wheelie. Yeah, like he's never like my books, you know, are around the house, and he's never been like, "Let me read these," you know. So right. Um, but it's just funny that it's like right there, <laughs> some fingering. 
Um, just a little fingering, whatever. Little anywhere. Um, so that's nice. Speaking awesome. of, I mentioned this to you, but I thought I would bring it up again. Mm. That I am writing a book um, about a girl who flees the hurricane to yes. and she goes to Orlando. Anyway, and then Marcy Demansky just announced that she has a book coming out in June called Hurricane Girl, and it's basically the exact same premise. <laughs> and you were like, oh, just keep writing it, you know, it's yeah. it'll be different enough. And I know that's true, but I just think it's so strange. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, that, I mean, what you just described, the thing where you either see like a movie or a, another book announced that is similar to the thing you're working on is like such a thing that is mm-hmm. such a, there was a, this is like a year ago, maybe there was a, the new, at the time, the new safety brothers project, like after uncut gems was announced and the description of it to me sounded like my novel. Oh my and God. I sent it to a buddy and he was like, yeah, I guess this is like a movie that's coming out. Like, what's the problem? And <laughs> it's like, and you know, that was humbling in a way because it's like, yeah, nobody, it, there's the connections. I think on a lot of this stuff, it's like are more tenuous than we think, even if um, a lot of the beats are the same or, or even, you know, even just like broader, broader connections can easily be made. I think, so much of what makes the fiction that you and I love, uh, you know, great that we love is, you know, truly what Lindsay Hunter brings to it, what Marcy Demansky brings to it. And um, that I think is kind of a hallmark of the kind of stuff that you and I really end up talking about forever and ever. It's just like the really idiosyncratic stuff. So it's true. You know, it's true. And I am yeah. not nothing like her, although sure. Like I told you, I've been thinking in my head, like, okay, it's going to be like bad Marie, but like on the road, right? <laughs> Although bad Marie is on the road right. <laughs> and she wrote that too. <laughs> I think I'm just, ex- I'm just going to have to read her book and then yeah, pivot, pivot to something else. Yeah. Um, That's funny. But yeah. What's up with you? Uh, you know, same stuff. It's just same stuff forever. Although I did have kind of a funny interaction this week because i was thinking you and i have never really talked about like agents before like how Mm -hmm. we got agents or like any of that Mm -hmm. but i had a funny interaction with my agent this week uh monica woods who's the best i had submitted old open to her uh and never got a response and well yeah so i always thought like okay no big deal like that's whatever and then i got a my my other book got long listed for a pen award and mm-hmm. so i was advised by a buddy uh christine sneed a great writer mm-hmm. um she said everyone that you want to work with that you have already queried re-query them and tell them that you are nominated for a pen award and it was really good advice. And I did that. And so Monica was somebody I reached out to again. I just said, Hey, you know, I'd really love to work with you. I have 50 pages of a new novel, um, nominated for this award, whatever. And Christine's advice was, and I think this is good advice for anybody. Um, you know, 
some of what you're doing when you're querying is just you want to have a little bit of a hook and whether that's um you know being nominated for something or being or just you know the nature of your project being related to something they've previously published or something that they have and kind of like they're what they're looking for section you know on their on their agency page whatever if there's some kind of connection if there's some kind of hook play that up and so I requeried her. We ended up, you know, working together. We still work together. She's great. Um, so we were texting about just nonsense this week. And I said to her, I was like, I never, I was like, I never asked you like why you passed on old open. And she, and this is, you know, I think we've been working together for like four years at this point. And she goes, you never sent it to me. Oh, and I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? And uh, I was like, yeah, I did. And she's like, oh my God. She's like, so I pulled up the email and I had sent it to uh, like at her attention. And, but it was like to a general email at the, at the agency she worked at at the time. She has her own agency now. And she's like, yeah, no, one of the interns just deleted that email. She's like <gasps> the first, she's like the first email I ever got from you was the, the one when you were nominated for that award. And I was like, oh my God. And I thought it was so funny because like all these years I had thought that she had just passed on that book, which ended up getting published by a really small press by, you know, Tortoise, um, Mm -hmm. which was a good experience. But like the whole time I was just like, oh, she just wasn't interested, didn't like it, no big deal. And the email had just been deleted. She never saw it. So it's funny because I think that there's something in that that is instructive moving forward. It's like so many of these things like are so chancy in the, in the world we're in and you hear it all the time. And it is so cliche. Like it only takes one person, mm-hmm. da, 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 whatever, got to get lucky, but like really and truly, <laughs> I believe that's my core. Like it's true. It's not bullshit when people say that. And this is someone who, you know, is a big fan of my work and whatever, but she just never even saw it. Mm-hmm. And I had the whole time, mm-hmm. I, the whole time I thought she had passed on it. So I thought that was something That's I wanted crazy. to share. Cause it was kind of, it was kind of funny. We both were laughing about it. It was like, Holy fuck. That is crazy. Yeah. No, I swear my whole career and even like my working career has mm-hmm. been, cause I knew one person, like one person got me in the door, one person believed in me you know yeah like absolutely that and I've just like kept trying to like be open to those moments you know yes they're hard to recognize sometimes yeah I mean Christine you got to buy Christine a bottle of wine or something Christine's the best we got to have her on she's she'd be a fun person to talk to such a great writer she's awesome um I mean uh, you <laughs> have we even talked i don't know how if we've talked about how we've met on the show but like if you think about it some lunatic approaching you at a grocery store <laughs> and being like i'm a big fan of your work and you your response was like how the fuck you didn't say that because you had kids with you but the the look on your face was like how the fuck do you know what i look like and no now, that I mean, was unfortunately the you have to talk to me every week it's just no. like brutal no that was so that was so awesome like i told everyone someone recognized me 
they like my stuff um oh my god yeah i know and look at us now look at us now weird it, it makes me think a little bit about what joanna was when joanna mentioned jane and phillips i just like remembered being like 18 19 years old again and finding these writers that you truly had never heard of at all and some professor or somebody offers them up to you and it changes your life because yep. it open it opens up another path and you realize like okay what's this press they're on who else are they publishing and mm -hmm. you're like oh my god there's and you entire... see a place for you you know yes where exactly. as before it felt kind of it could have felt like a little closed off or like yes untouchable but then you find someone who's familiar or absolutely exciting and you're like i think i have something to say to yes who was it and was it patrick somerville for that that turned me on jane and phillips no that turned you on to lindsey hunter no no oh i thought I it was patrick no i read your stuff in smoke long <gasps> and yeah they're great and that was that's where i published my first ever thing and then i just followed you and tried to understand like okay where is she publishing what is she doing and i feel like the internet was a little different then i feel like there were actually a lot more places at that time mm -hmm. even i mean we're talking about like 10 years ago mm -hmm. but i feel like 10 years ago feels really different than right now to me definitely as far as journals and i feel like you would see these same names pop up um you know burrow press uh smoke long there's so many places but um it feels it feels smaller to me now but also to be clear like i am not in it the same way i used to be as far as like online lit journals trying to publish short stuff but yeah it felt like there were a ton of places back then and there were a lot of people kind of trying to do the same thing it's definitely different and i don't know how much of that is just like i had to go have kids and yeah like, exactly survive That's, um right. and i kind of lost the plot um because when we were talking mm -hmm. to um mallory last week like the writers that she publishes on maudlin house like they're so new to me you know yes. but yep. i'm sure they're not you know, like I'm sure they have a fall followings and like, it's just, you know, some of it's just that I have not been in the game, you know, like I want to yeah. be in the game. Let me back in the game. God, I kind of don't want to be in the <laughs> game. <laughs> there, you know what? One thing uh, submittable, like just the, the whole looking at submittable things like moving from. Yeah. That's the worst. Yeah. I, that's something I think that if you can excise that from your life and still submit in a way that works for you, do it because it's just, it's crazy making. I, I never look, I never look, I just like submit. Yeah. And then I wait to get the email that says no thanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause I don't. Yeah. No. Speaking of, uh, if, if, our listeners haven't checked out Tammy, which is the um, chapbook publishing oh, yeah. house and, and lit journal that Joanna runs. You should, cause it is very good looking and very. it's got some really exciting yeah. writers. I saw Brian Evanson has a story and I think the latest no issue. Yeah. So Tammy, check it out everyone. Yeah. Other than that, like I, I read um, Alexandra Kleeman's latest book, something new. Oh, man. You know what? I don't know if you texted it to me or if you tweeted it, but the 
there was there was a paragraph in there that made me want to read that book. Like whatever oh, you, my lord, there, did you text that to me or did you tweet that? It was on Instagram, so neither. Okay, Jesus, <laughs> it is filled with. I saw some. Remember that dumb viral tweet that was like, "There's no more novels of ideas." Mm-hmm. This is a novel of. I mean, it's hilarious and and got a huge plot and you know, there's a narrative, but there's also all kinds of ideas and I could not put it down. Like I Had you read her work everywhere. before. No. And I've, I, I know I always wanted to read you two can have a body like mine, but I've never read it. What a great title. I know. Um, and I'm excited to read it because I absolutely loved this book. So good. And then I was kind of yeah. bereft because it was over. Um, but I just so happened, uh, I mentioned it earlier, Benjamin Labatut's book came in on my library holds when we ceased to understand the world. And I kept hearing about that book and I was like, I don't know if that book's for me because I'm a dummy. Um, but I started reading it yesterday, I think. And it is, it's like almost a perfect companion to Alexander Kleeman's book because it's, wow. it's about these scientific discoveries that were ruinous for humanity but also for their creators and like mathematicians driven to madness and and some of its fiction he takes these real scientific discoveries and real people and some of it he fictionalizes um but i i think most of it is nonfiction. i'm i'm curious to see how much but um it is just mind-blowing and some of the stuff he's talking about in there like these theories are like it's hard to fully understand or picture what these thinkers were getting at, but, mm-hmm. but it's okay. It's okay to understand that your intelligence is limited or your knowledge of physics or relativity isn't, isn't where Einstein's is or whatever, but it's more about kind of like the ripples of what these discoveries did, you know? Sounds amazing. It's awesome. It's so good. It's on New York review of books. Mm-hmm. And it, um, I think it was a national book award finalist. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm happy to, ha- sometimes when I really love a book, the next book I pick up is a letdown, but, mm. um, this is great in its own way. I actually got more reading done than I have in a long time. I, I've read three quarters of socialist realism by Trisha Lowe, oh. which was a coffee house slash Emily books book. And uh love that. So good. It's nonfiction. Um and it's one of these books that the thing that I'm coming away from it with is just it's really, really interesting in transition. That it's you know, it's it's I guess part memoir. You could you could almost call it a memoir, I guess, but um the way the way the paragraphs are relating to each other, the way that uh, she's getting in and out of things is just kind of amazing. And the kind of thing that makes me really excited for some reason, I feel like transitions are something that when someone is doing it really well, it's, it's one of the things that gets me really excited to start working on something myself. Mm -hmm. Like when you see someone really understanding how to get in and out of things and kind of keep you, keep you there, but also just, I mean, just be interesting and just keep moving is, is something that I find really like heartening as a reader. Dang. How did you come across that? You know what? I, it was recommended to me 
uh, actually by Monica. She said, pick it up. She really liked it. And wow. so, yeah, but I mean, we had, you know, we had uh, Hillary liked her on here. That was another coffee house mm-hmm. slash Emily books mm-hmm. book. I think that most of those are kind of home runs, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think didn't Emily books. Um, Margaret, the first is really good. Mean is really good. Problems by Jade Sharma. Oh, my um, God. That book is like mm-hmm. people. Have you read that? Problems? Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. I loved I, it. I want to read that. Yeah, there's lots of man, Emily Books. We love you, Emily Books. Women mm-hmm. by Chloe Caldwell. Chloe Caldwell has a book coming out uh this year. The Red Zone, a love story. Um what a great title, Jesus. A searching galvanizing memoir about blood and love, how learning more about her period, PMS, PMDD, and the effects of hormones on moods transformed her relationships. We also watched Zola, the movie Zola. Mm-hmm. Did you have you seen it? I don't think so. It's based on that viral Twitter thread. No, fuck no, no. Okay. Oh, it's so good. What is it? I don't even know what it is. Yeah. So the basic premise is like these, this girl who does the Twitter thread Zola meets this other girl and they decide to go to Florida to strip. And it ends up being that she, her, the girl she just met is like allowing her pimp to use the other girl and it's just like a crazy wild like funny desperate story and um i've never even heard of this i'm looking at it right now what the hell it's real good riley keogh is in it Mm -hmm. i think the other actress is taylor page i had never seen her in anything before nicholas braun who's great in succession anyway it was real real good and the best thing is that it's like an hour 20 minutes long (laughs) It's so short. Perfect. You're in, you're out. The uh, the only thing I've watched other than hockey recently is How to with John Wilson. Have you watched that? No, I've I've heard that I would like it. This is oh my god, I fucking I love it. It makes me so happy. I was talking with somebody. It it's one of these shows where actually I don't have many. It's not, it's not one of these shows. This show makes me so happy because of like the level of attention that is paid by whoever is editing it. I I might be John Wilson. It might be somebody else, but like, it's just totally, uh, totally nuts. If you watch, uh, if you have HBO max, how to with John Wilson, I recommend it. Okay. I'm on it. I'm on it. I think you'll love it. Good job. Yeah, decent job for uh, you know, <laughs> three beers, woke up at 3:40. Oh my god. Decent job. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, go to sleep. Okay, bye. Bye. I'm a writer but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter, music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.